welcome everyone to New Books and Education on the New Books Network. Uh, this is Ryan Allen, your new host uh, for New Books and Education. And uh, today I'm live from uh, the Community College Research Center here at Teachers College, Columbia University. Uh, and I'm excited to have uh, two guests for this book today. Uh, and we're going to be talking about performance funding for higher education. What are the mechanisms? What are the impacts? Uh, and this is part of the J.B. Ash Higher Education Report series. And this is published in July 2013 uh, from Jossie Bass. And so let me just explain a little bit about this book. First, uh, uh, it's on performance funding, which really started in uh, 1979. And it looks at uh, research from, from that date, basically, to now and kind of compiles it together. Uh, and talks about uh, what performance funding actually is, which states or what which uh, places have performance funding, and then really what are the implications of performance funding. So uh, uh, we have Bakash Reddy, and then we have Kevin Doherty. So uh, Kevin Doherty, uh, uh, today, thank you for joining me. Bakash Reddy, thank you for joining me. And uh, let's go ahead and begin. Kevin, do you want to uh, maybe begin by let, telling us how you sort of uh, got here Intellectually? Mm-hmm. Um, well, the original, um, the origins of the project go back to research I was doing on a project headed by Tom Bailey, who's the director of the Community College Research Center. And back in the early 2000s, I got very interested in performance funding. And um, uh, with uh, Esther Hong, we did an analysis of performance funding and it's how it operated in a number of states. Um, and that came out in a book that Tom Bailey and um, Vanessa Marest um, edited called Defending the Community College Equity Agenda. So uh, that whetted my appetite for performance funding, and I decided to continue looking at it. Um, started a grant with funding from the Lumina Foundation looking at the political origins of performance funding, and we were looking at the origins in eight different states. Um, uh, research, by the way, that uh, came out in a number of articles and uh, is, we're, we're hoping, coming out in the book that I'm waiting to hear from a publisher to see whether or not it might be published. But um, at towards the end of that research on the political origins of performance funding, it seemed very timely to start thinking about what its impacts were. And uh, we, I realized that there was not a lot of research that had been done really pulling together what knowledge we had on the impacts of performance funding. And at that point, Vikash and I started working together to pull together all the available research that we could find on the various impacts of performance funding, um, both the immediate intended impacts to um, what might be unintended impacts and to the degree performance funding might not be working, what might be the obstacles. Um, and uh, that review of the literature is what eventuated in this Josie Bass uh, Ash Monograph series book that uh, you're asking us about. Okay, fantastic. And uh, Vakash, if you want to add anything to that, and then also maybe if you could explain uh, to the audience what performance funding is, and I, I know there's performance funding 1.0 that you guys have identified, and then 2.0, so if you can kind of get into that and explain that. Sure. So, you know, I came to Teachers College as a, as a graduate student, um, broadly thinking more about, I think, K-12 to issues uh, than necessarily higher ed at the beginning of my sort of doctoral career, um, and and also thinking about accountability mechanisms. And so I, I had seen some of the stuff that Kevin had worked on, and, and had heard about some of the stuff that he was thinking about in in some of the projects that he was working on. 
uh, and and applied for uh, a position as his research assistant and and uh, ran the gauntlet successfully and um, started came on board and started working on this and, and had found it really interesting and I, and I think you know the progression is is also something that's interesting so you mentioned of, of sort of the 1.0 to the 2.0 um, and so when these these programs were sort of originally conceived and, and their their initial focus was on adding a bonus to a regular state allocation that, that a, a college or a university gets um, in their regular allocation process. Uh, and, and so 1979, you mentioned as sort of a start date, was, was when Tennessee began their program. Um, and initially, it was about a 2.5% bonus. Uh, some years later, they, they made that more like a 5.5% bonus. But the the, the thing that really tied those programs together was that they largely were were above and on top of your regular allocation from the state. Um, and so, you know, there was a wave of those programs followed by, you know, a little bit of a demise. And, and we've seen more recently what, what we're calling sort of the second wave or, or the 2.0 programs where performance indicators are, are actually embedded within the formula uh, that determines the allocation that the institution will receive. Um, and so different states have, have sort of based different amounts of their formula on, on outcomes indicators. Uh, Tennessee has, has arguably one of the most uh, sort of in-depth um, where, where, you know, almost all of the state allocation is based on um, a range of indicators. Uh, other programs in other states have, have uh, smaller portions dedicated to performance funding, but again, um, those fall within the actual allocation rather than sort of a base or a plus allocation. Okay, fantastic. So uh, kind of moving forward, what, you know, we talked about sort of the allocation, you mentioned kind of 2% at the beginning. Uh, what are some of the mechanisms really that, they, that they're using to um, allocate this funding? So, um, so we, we broadly think about these in terms of four mechanisms, um, policy instruments or policy mechanisms that are in operation. And, and one of them, the first one that is sort of probably the most obvious, which is a financial incentive. Um, you know, for better performance, you will get more money. And it's, it's, we think about that in terms of like a profit seeker um, and institutions as profit maximizing and revenue maximizing. And so when you, when you attach the funding to that, you say, you make it very clear this is how you're going to generate additional revenue is through increasing your performance on whatever the chosen metrics are. Um, and we see graduation numbers and, and retention numbers and, and other sorts of metrics that, that we can get into maybe a little uh, a little more later. Um, but the, the sort of basic underlying thing there is a financial incentive. Uh, we also think about, so states need to explain to institutions and to the general public what is the priority for the, the system of higher education. And talk about the goals for their new formula and, and, and how the formula is going to work, um, and the and the methods by which the formula achieves its its desired outcomes. And so, thinking about aligning sort of institutional goals with the state goals, and making sure that that institutions are working towards sort of the same goals that state policymakers have identified. Um, a third one that, that you know we look for is thinking about sort of in giving giving campuses and, and people on campus information about how well their institution is performing, what are their numbers, what do their graduation numbers and graduation rates look like. Um, and, and there are sort of two things that, that, or two ways in which this might operate. One being that, that you know, college presidents and, and colleges, we know that there is some competition there, that everybody wants to be number one, that it's, you know, it's a yeah. great press release if you can say yeah. we have the highest this or that. 
Um, and the other is sort of the flip side of that, which is shame, which is you don't want to be at the bottom, right? right? And so if you see an, a, a lead table in which your institution is falling further down, you might say that would, would encourage people to, to um, take actions to bolster the outcomes. And the fourth one that, that, you know, that we're concerned about is thinking about sort of institutional capacity. Um, how are colleges and, and universities, how well are they equipped to, to sort of grapple with the questions they need to ask? about their performance, um, you know, what is it that's leading to, uh, if it is substandard performance, what's causing that, and, and sort of getting into, um, do institutions have the resources, and, and is the state providing resources with which colleges and universities can really engage in that sort of meaningful organizational learning, and, and actually make changes on their campuses that will then affect changes in their numbers. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, fantastic, that was a, a great explanation, I think. Um, moving forward, you know, you mentioned Tennessee already, uh, you mentioned sort of, uh, how, how it's grown, expanded from there from 1979. So maybe you want to touch on, uh, which states, uh, do have performance funding or which states had performance funding. Mm-hmm. Well, um, at this point, um, it, roughly 25 states have performance funding. Another four or five will be bringing it, plan to bring it on board within the next one, two, three years. Um, they may have already authorized it, but they haven't actually begun to, to connect funding to it. But um, a number of states also have established performance funding and then later discontinued it. So if you take the total number of states that at one point or another have ever had performance funding, we end up with 35. So it's a pretty extensive number. Um, and of the 15 or 25 that have it now, 11, 12 uh, have it in the form of what Vikash was calling performance funding 2.0. That is, the funding uh, indicators are embedded in the base state funding uh, itself. They're, it's not taking the form of a bonus on top of uh, regular state funding. But clearly, uh, the remainder of the states, about half of them, do still have performance funding 1.0 programs. Okay, so that's you know considerable. If the fifty states, half the states have it, so it's it's obviously an important mm-hmm. aspect here in higher education. Uh, how about on the institutions themselves? What are sort of the the impacts? Uh, I know you guys get into sort of um, incentives and then like a growing awareness by not just the uh, states but also um, on the institutions themselves. Mm-hmm. So. Right. So uh, as I was, uh, I think I mentioned, the, the second instrument really thinks about awareness of, of what are the goals and the priorities for the state. And the third one was sort of awareness of, of colleges, uh, their own outcomes. Um, and so, you know, the impacts that we think about, we sort of separate them into into impacts that are what I think we've termed intermediate impacts, um, which are things that are going on on campus. Um, and, and those are, are distinct from sort of ultimate impacts of what are the numbers of graduates or graduation rates. Um, and so, you know, that allows us to try to think about what are what are the actual on-campus actions that are happening? Are we seeing, um, you know, are we seeing investments in tutoring or student services? Are, are colleges and universities uh, doing things uh, about academic um, changes to to sort of programs or, or curricula or, or requirements for graduation? Um, and also thinking about sort of the third third type of impact broadly thinking is, is sort of unintended impacts. Are there any is there anything going on that, that maybe is, is was not intended? Is it could be viewed as sort of a side effect of, of the formula? Um, and you know, not to say that those are all bad, but uh, you know, maybe not necessarily intended by the by the students. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Mm-hmm. Want to pick up there? Yeah. No. So um, 
So if you see this kind of what we think of as a kind of progression of impacts from the immediate impacts, as Vikash was saying, that is, um, do institutions become aware of the possible uh, financial benefits or costs of performance funding? Are they more aware of what the state wants them to do in terms of awareness of performance funding? Are they more aware of their own performance? Uh, is the state providing capacity building help? We certainly see impacts on the first three, um, awareness of the financial incentive, awareness of state goals, awareness of their own performance. When we get to the fourth, capacity building, there we find it both shows up in our review of the literature and, by the way, the study we're now conducting on performance funding in Indiana, Ohio, and Tennessee, that the fourth instrument, um, capacity building, has a much smaller presence and much less impact on the institutions. Um, and then, as Vikash pointed out, we then, then track the intermediate impacts. That is, okay, so these policy instruments are affecting the institutions. What do the institutions do in response to try to improve their, their uh, student outcomes? And it takes a form, as Vikash was mentioning, of changes in academic programs, um, uh, for example, changes in degree requirements to make it easier for students to graduate, changes in student support programs such as better advising or tutoring. Um, and that has been the main area in which we've seen sort of intermediate impacts. And finally, as Vikash noticed, we're very interested in what might be the unintended impacts. Mm-hmm. Um, but at some point, if you'd like, we could talk a little bit about our findings on, on the ultimate impacts on student outcomes. Okay, yeah, I guess um, if we yeah, maybe go into the uh, sort of impacts on uh, it, like graduation rate, are these actually helping students? Is this something that... Uh, uh, is actually having an impact that I think we could sort of uh, say is, is positive for, for the universities or is it just they're meeting these goals and then we're, um, uh, and then they're just getting their money. Um, so um, can you talk about retention rates or also remedial education where we see, you know, I think it's up to what, a third of students coming into to mm-hmm. schools. Are getting, about two-thirds at community colleges. About two-thirds, so yeah. even higher uh, impact on right. community colleges. Well, it's, when you look at impacts, it's uh, often people will want to you know, say, is it working or not? And it, it, it's very important to see impacts as, in effect, involving a series of steps. So first, are the institutions paying attention to the policy instruments? The answer is yes. Um, some more than others, but yes. Secondly, are the institutions responding by changing their programs to improve student outcomes? The answer is yes. We're, both our review of the literature and our current research indicates that. Then you're saying, okay, but then in the end, is that producing improvements in student outcomes? And here's where it gets very tricky. In our review of the literature, what we pulled together was the available studies that look at this, and you have to be very careful here because um, – you could get, for example, higher graduation numbers simply because more people are going to, to colleges. More people enroll, you're going to have more people graduating, though you may actually not be getting a higher percentage graduating. So that if you want to get a real sense of whether performance funding is having an impact, is you need to be able to control for changes in, in enrollments. Uh, have there been any changes in other state policies besides performance funding that might be affecting, uh, uh, for example, completion like tuition and financial aid? Are there any changes in the economy that might be making students more or less willing to stay on to get a degree? So it's only if you control for all of those conditions in a careful statistical analysis can you begin getting at, but is performance funding itself having an impact? And the studies we we pulled together said that at least for for performance funding 1.0, there does not seem to be an impact. 
Um, and that's what led us in part, and Vikash can talk about that more, about what the obstacles might be. We don't yet know about Performance Funding 2.0. Now, these are programs that, you know, as we were talking about, embed the indicators in the, in the base state funding. In the case of Tennessee and Ohio, involve a much larger proportion of the total state funding. These could have a, a significant impact. Um, we've certainly seen impacts, we said, as we said, in, in the immediate and intermediate aspects. Now, ultimate student outcomes, we haven't yet seen any study conducted of this multivariate variety. We do know that with the introduction of performance funding in these states, graduation numbers have gone up. But again, we need to be able to keep, take into account whether that could be due to increased enrollments. That careful multivariate analysis hasn't yet been conducted, so we can't definitively say whether in the end performance funding 2.0 is having the, uh, the intended impacts. We have these intermediate indicators that uh, positive developments are going on. We don't know in the end whether ultimately the, right. uh, that result's being produced. But let's say if it were that such an analysis were to be conducted and it does find that performance funding 2.0 is not having this ultimate effect, then that could well be due perhaps to uh, possible obstacles that performance funding programs are running okay. into and being able to effectively produce the results. So that's something that we reviewed as well. Yeah, let's uh, maybe let's get into some of those obstacles. I think that's you know maybe some of the most interesting uh, interesting stuff in the book to see really what is stopping uh, this from having a, a positive effect. Mm-hmm. Um, Bakashi, sure. I mean, one of the ones that I think is, is you know, worth really thinking about is, is and, I, and I was mentioning capacity before as a, as a policy instrument, right? Is the state providing resources? Um, and so do, do colleges have the capacity, the institutional research capacity um, and, and the organizational learning capacity to engage in, in you know, these types of uh, in activities that would then boost their their outcomes, um, and so you know that's as I was saying that not just institutional research personnel, but things like IT structures. Uh, do they have the IT capacity to do this? Um, are they collecting you know the right sorts of data? Um, you know, one of the things that, that that we're seeing too is that colleges and universities traditionally have been asked to track their enrollments and and. You know the data systems that they have are are traditionally you know geared towards that, and so now they're being asked, well, you got to track these other things too. So, do they have the capacity to do that? Is the state uh, giving them resources with which that can be done, um, and then you know to to carry that down the line through the through the college and have those decisions? So, is this why you think some of the uh, states have have given up some of the performance funding? Is that a possibility or? No, actually, one of the things that was interesting, to the extent states have given up performance funding, it's not really because of demonstrable evidence it's not working. Typically, it would be much more, especially in a performance 1.0 system, if, uh, or let me just correct myself, if, let's say, um, institutions weren't always happy when performance funding was installed, they might live with it as long as the state was at least able to continue providing uh, state aid and, and with the state aid increasing year to year. Particularly when a recession would strike, that state aid might plateau and even drop. And at that point, a lot of institutions that were not perhaps thrilled with performance funding to begin with would then say, if you're going to cut any kind of funding, better to get rid of this performance funding before you start cutting our base state funding. So it was more... Um, those kinds of factors like um, the state revenue cycle, 
Um, another cause of often the demise of performance funding is that the particular governor or legislator who had been the leader in getting performance funding passed might have left office. Uh, the personnel in the state higher education office that were also strong supporters might have moved on. Mm -hmm. So uh, those kinds of political and economic factors were more uh, what was at work when performance funding gets discontinued. It was typically not that states were concluding it wasn't working. Okay. Very uh, very uh, interesting, I think, because, you know, talking about funding and, and that goes into also competition, mm -hmm. which you're talking about. Um, and so universities, I think you, you mentioned sort of earlier, are in, in the states that have kept performance funding, uh, it's only higher stakes now for them. And so, uh, how are the how are the universities trying to, to kind of game the system? I think you guys uh, say in in these systems to show sort of that they um, are meeting the marks from performance funding. Well, the issue we get, we, we were thinking about is if one of the things you want is genuine improvements in, in student performance, might institutions, particularly if they find it difficult to generate that easily, uh, try to game the system by, um, for example, in a state that was, you know, like Tennessee was originally, in one of its original measures was a measure of, of um, uh, how well students would do on tests uh, uh, in, of their knowledge in certain majors. Um, certain colleges reported, or we had people in our review of the literature reporting that at their college, uh, they might be trying to time the, the test of knowledge in that major at times that would generate, get students who are most likely to do well on that test and therefore generate high rates of, of knowledge. Mm -hmm. So we certainly, in, in, and we've got to say, these are reports that we were getting from um, analyses that were getting conducted by the state, many dissertations that we're drawing on, and it's in these in these sources that we were getting statements of this sort, and that we were then aggregating, trying to show what these patterns were across the states. Anything else we're thinking about in terms of obstacles, Vikash, that we should mention? Sure. I mean, I think so. One of the things that, that comes up every now and again is is just thinking about whether the measures that the state has selected are appropriately designed for the institution in question. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, thinking about graduation rates or, or, you know, and, and sort of the completion aspect of performance funding. And, and there are certainly people who are saying to, you know, and, and it's in the review too, is, is that, you know, community colleges weren't necessarily desired. That's not their necessarily their only purpose, right? We, we want community colleges to be a place where people can go to take, you know, a class or a, a sequence and not necessarily get their own, a full blown uh, associate's degree. Um, and so, you know, thinking about just, just as policymakers in, in states that are considering these these programs are thinking about how to how to shape them, uh, you know, being very mindful of what are the institutions that you're that you're looking at, what are their their original purposes and their and their goals, and 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 um, working to to design metrics that are really reflective of that. Um, and a few other things that you know, so so we also think about what is the size of the allocation? Um, is it you know we have, have these studies that Kevin mentioned really not found too much uh, because the size of the allocation is very low. Um, you know, we were talking about Tennessee's 1.0 program. Even when they boosted it, it was 5% of, of the budget. So there's money there, but but is it enough to to motivate people to, to do things that they weren't otherwise doing? Um, and some other things are, are also that, that, you know, Tennessee is, is maybe an outlier in this regard, that it's had very stable indicators associated with its program over the last 40 years. For thirty or forty years, other programs, you know, they they will change sort of what's being measured every couple of years as they as they tweak their system or try to make changes. And so you can imagine that 
you know, college actors seeing this are going to say, well, do I really want to invest a lot of time or energy into this if I think it might change in three years? And so that's sort of some of the other stuff that comes out of the, out of the, the monograph piece. Yeah. And one of the things then to pick up on uh, something Vikash said, one of the major obstacles that got identified in, in the studies we reviewed, and it shows up, by the way, in our recent study as well, is that if you have an institution that has a lot of students who are coming to college not well prepared or coming to college with, you know, their, uh, you know, socioeconomic and other disadvantages, it will simply be harder for that institution to generate higher numbers, high numbers of, of, of graduates. So um, this is a particular concern in the case of, let's say, community college and, and broad access for your colleges, which are purposely designed to provide opportunity to less prepared students. But we'd hear reports, you know, reports would, would show up indicating that people were saying that this would make it more difficult. Mm-hmm for them to be able to generate the same numbers of graduates as perhaps institutions that were bringing in uh, considerably more advantaged students. And if the um, performance funding system did not take that into account, it would put broad access institutions at a disadvantage when it came to generating these kinds of uh, outcomes that are, that are desirable. So that was another obstacle that was a particular concern. So potentially universities and institutions could uh, or might try to, to lessen the access for these students, maybe have higher uh, qualifications to get in, even if they're really meant for uh, a larger audience. Kind of right. Thing. So that was of concern. So we came across reports you know, in, in the studies we reviewed where people were indicating that what institutions might consider doing, particularly not so much universities if they're relatively selective, since they've in effect largely taken care of this problem, but community colleges and broad access four-year institutions might be tempted, particularly if they're running into obstacles Mm -hmm. in producing the kinds of graduation numbers that might be deemed uh, attractive, that they might resort to restricting enrollments, particularly Mm -hmm. of less prepared students. And emphasize more bringing in better prepared students who are more likely to graduate. And that kind of unintended impact um, in the sense that this was not an impact that that state officials were thinking about or desiring when they were uh, uh, putting together performance funding, that this unintended impact is particularly problematic in the case of institutions that are supposedly really uh, devoted towards broad access and democratizing opportunity for higher education. Um, now, what we found in our subsequent study, and uh, we should mention, by the way, our colleagues on that other study, so um, uh, uh, Rebecca Natal, uh, Sosanya Jones, Lara Fiat, Hannah Lahr, um, are joining us in the study looking at Indiana, Ohio, and Tennessee. And um, uh, Hannah Lahr, for example, is heading up our, our, our analysis of unintended impacts. And one of the things that really emerges is that we're getting a distinction between impacts that people are saying are potential. They're saying this might happen or we could see our institution perhaps doing this in impacts where it's clear we're getting more people observing that these things are actually occurring. The bulk of the statements of unintended impacts are about potential impacts, but we're still getting a, a, a fairly sizable number of reports that are really uh, reports about actions already being taken. Mm-hmm. And so we've been getting, um, you know, not inconsiderable number of reports of people talking about efforts to refocus, you know, uh, outreach and admissions to better prepared students, maybe even cutting back the use of uh, institutional uh, financial aid funds, 
putting less emphasis on students in need and putting more emphasis on students who might be better prepared. And that kind of response to performance funding, which is not what the state officials said they were looking for, and has a real impact on, on the democratizing role of higher education, yeah, uh, that's, that's of concern to us. And clearly one of the things that we were really thinking about is our state officials taking that into account and taking steps to guard against that. Mm-hmm. Um, and notably, the states we've looked at have done that. I mean, that in our immediate study, Ohio, Indiana, and Tennessee have, for example, provided premiums so that if you graduate a student who's coming from a, a less advantaged background, you'll actually be getting more from the state in terms of funding than you would if you were just graduating a student that doesn't have those kinds of disadvantages. So there's a case where the states have tried to uh, counteract this uh, possible unintended impact, but of concern to us is whether other states mm-hmm. uh, jumping into this more quickly and without as much thought might not be thinking of doing something like this, which is very important. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, well, it's nice to hear that some of the states actually are taking uh, these things into consideration. Uh, one one other aspect, uh, maybe if you guys have seen or which you guys reported on, was. Uh, kind of grade inflation, and that's been an issue that uh, maybe has gotten some media coverage uh, recently. Uh, but have we seen uh, grade inflation from, from this? Um, yeah, let me pick up a few. Yeah. So, well, it's tricky. Yes, we've gotten again. So it's again, we saw reports in our review of the literature, people talking about both this as a possibility and this as a result. And we see that kind of similar kind of um, a lot of reports that this might happen in, in somewhat fewer, but still not insignificant number of people saying it is occurring. Here's the difficulty. So part of the way in which the larger category we use is kind of weakening of academic standards. Great inflation is one of them, and that would be where a faculty member is reluctant to give, let's say, an F or a D um, because this might cause a student not not to complete the course or even graduate. Um, And um, a quieter form in which might occur is institutions, for example, revisiting uh, degree requirements and thinking about courses, eliminating uh, uh, certain required courses because they're more difficult to complete. And therefore, students might be more likely to drop out or not complete a degree or simply not complete a course. And mm-hmm. sometimes that's states are actually measuring that. The tricky thing is, is that it's not always easy to determine when, let's say, you have a degree sequence and you drop a certain difficult course. Um, some people might be saying you're dropping a difficult and unnecessary course. Other people might be saying you're dropping a difficult and necessary course. It's not always easy to know when which one of those is, is, is in place. But nonetheless, it's important to look at this carefully because we could be getting cases where institutions may be going beyond just dropping difficult and unnecessary courses and dropping difficult and necessary courses. And there you're getting into a kind of a weakening of the academic content of the degrees uh, that that they're giving. But um, arriving at these judgments is takes a considerable amount of, you know, care, and you have to be very aware of organizational context and nuance. And that's something we're very mindful in our study. But it's something we're also pointing to that policymakers need to be aware of this possibility and thinking about, well, how do we guard against this? Um, and uh, so has it's not easy. Has there been uh, evidence to show that policymakers are actually uh, aware of this or, or combating this? 
Awareness, yes. Um, I think that you know a lot of it is is sort of a, a I guess a, a trust in higher education to a degree. Um, you know, I think that policymakers will say, "Well, faculty, you know, that's that's their game, and they wouldn't do that." Um, but I don't know that there's been any really formal. I mean, the things that we think about are surveying faculty members to ask about. Um, you know, are they feeling those pressures? Uh, potentially, you know, setting up a, a system whereby. Um, you can audit a syllabus and, and make sure that, you know, or randomly pull syllabi and make sure that the standards within those are high. And, and thinking about just watching changes being made to programs and degree requirements to ensure that, that you know, those are not being dropped sort of in a superficial way, but, but are being thought through. Um, so you, oh, sorry. Uh, so you kind of got into sort of the faculty and, and their role a little bit, but do you want to go into more of that faculty actually losing uh, a little bit of control, a little bit of a voice uh, when when performance funding is, is increased. Well, so it doesn't necessarily have to be that way, right? You can you can envision a system whereby, again, thinking sort of back to these mechanisms we were talking about, where faculty are brought into these conversations about what are the barriers to student success at this campus. You know, what are the things that we can do as a campus, as a faculty, as a as sort of a community to think these these things through. Um, or, you know, and, and sort of engender this much more bottom-up style of, of reform uh, versus, you know, the, the more of a top-down approach whereby administrators are dictating policy changes and, and, and faculty are being sort of frozen out or, or losing their voice. Um, and, and I think, you know, it, it's, it's there, we see evidence for, for sort of both of those, um, but probably a little more evidence of, of, of top-down approaches. Um, and, and so, you know, that's that is something for campuses to think about, right? Is how do we involve a campus in a in a more meaningful dialogue about about student outcomes? Yeah, and I think that's the you know the kind of process that Vikash is talking about that we think is really important. Really relies on a lot of internal conversation within institutions, among faculty, between administrators and faculty. And conversation by the state with institutions in designing these policies. And we have states that have done this very carefully. We're really struck by the states in which we've looked at where they've really gone at this pretty carefully. But what they've shown us is that this kind of uh, consultation by the state with the institutions and institutions internally takes time, is not easy, can't be rushed. And we worry that some states wanting to join the bandwagon of performance funding, what might want to do this very quickly. A quick decision by the state legislature with fairly minimal consultation by higher education. Uh, quick decisions by institutions to institute new programs with fairly minimal consultation with the faculty. Um, they may be very tempted to do this. It's a way of jump-starting these programs. But what we are concerned about is that um, this could be a real blow to the the, the, the Autonomy of higher education in the process of, an effect, faculty, voice, and governance, but more importantly, it may really undercut the capacity of performance funding to generate the kind of results that people want in terms of improved student outcomes without at the same time producing quite significant unintended consequences. So consultation is very important, but it takes time, mm-hmm. and we're hoping policymakers are willing to allow that time to be available. Right, right. Uh, we're coming... Uh, Sort of close to the to, to the latter stage of the book, um, so if, if you guys can maybe talk about and you know kind of 
uh, sprinkled it throughout, but sort of the uh, overall research implications and then also the overall implications for practice. And then and, and maybe also one of you want to talk about sort of where, where is performance funding going? Where is this, is there a, is there a 3.0 out there or is, is, uh, is 2.0 spreading even further? We falling back into 1.0. Uh, maybe talk about some of those for you. You want to take up the policy and um, theory implications, and I can maybe take up that last one. Sure. So, so you know, sort of thinking the the policy and theory is thinking about you know I'll take it back to the policy instruments that I was talking about and and, and couch it in terms of those four and the financial incentives and the uh, the awareness of goals of, of the state priorities and, and the methods, the awareness of institutional performance and, and again capacity building. Um, and one of the things that, that we think about, with, at least with some of these instruments, is, is sort of the, the aligning of goals between, between the state and, and the campus, right? And making very clear what are sort of what is, what is the system as a whole trying to get towards. Um, and so, you know, in terms of policy, I think, I think what we're seeing is, is sort of a, a reliance more on the financial incentive. And that seems to be the one that is, that is winning out over the others. But, you know, is it because of the profit seeking or is it because that is how uh, states are defining their priorities? I think there's a, there's a mix of that. Um, and, you know, in terms of the capacity building is one that we, we think is very important. We find that to be sort of an obstacle to effective perform- or effectively responding to this. So, you know, our, I think our hopes, at least for, the, for, for policy as it goes forward, is, is that policymakers are considering, you know, how are campuses able to do this? Are the, do they have the tools, do they have the capacity, the resources to really make that a possibility? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then another policy implication we, we certainly think is important is, is um, strong awareness on the part of state officials in designing these programs. They take into account... Um, differences in institutional mission and make sure that the particular indicators are well mapped against those. As Vikash is pointing out, particularly in the case of community colleges, you want to acknowledge the fact many of the students who are coming are not coming necessarily with a desire for a degree. Many of them will be transferring to four-year colleges and will not necessarily get a community college degree in the process. So are you taking that into account? And are you taking into account that institutions will differ greatly in, in the uh, academic preparation and social advantages of their students, and therefore the capacity of those institutions to generate high graduation rates. So are you, for example, um, making sure that when you compare institutions, you're comparing like institutions, or are you comparing institutions now against their past performance and not simply comparing very different institutions and expecting the same results from them? So these issues of, of policy design are very important. And I think our, our recommendations that we would really emphasize in terms of policy. Mm-hmm. And then we had some int- some recommendations as well in terms of kind of future studies. Um, so, yeah, future studies, I mean, I think there, there are a number of things that, that we want to get at, and, and one is just sort of broadly thinking about colleges and, and the larger communities. And we know that colleges are made up of, of not just tenured faculty, but also adjuncts um, and, and people who maybe feel pressures from from. Um, their bosses very differently than maybe a yeah. tenured faculty person might, and so um, what are the implications there? Are there are there other pressures um, that that we're seeing, and and also just you know in terms of future future study, thinking about competing causal factors. Right? There's a lot going on um, in the world, you know, that may be feeding into some of these, and so can we think about some of those, you know, are you know, and the ways in which even colleges are are involved in designing the programs, and and so. You know, are there implications out of, out of those? Um, I feel like there is one that I'm forgetting. 
Well, no, but the, what you're raising is sort of very important. So we certainly think that because performance funding is is operating within a context of many different possible factors affecting institutional performance, it really requires, in the end, very careful, careful multivariate analysis mm-hmm. of its impacts on student outcomes. We've had such analyses for performance funding 1.0. We st- don't still for performance funding 2.0. So that kind of study would be very important. And certainly Vikash and I came out of our review of the literature thinking that we certainly needed much more careful study of, you know, the way the various policy instruments worked, uh, the intended impacts, the obstacles and unintended impacts, but in ways that would very carefully pay attention to differences between states, differences by type of institution. So the the uh, study we're, uh, we're conducting now with our colleagues that we mentioned earlier mm-hmm. Um, that's why we're looking at three different states. We're looking at two different kinds of institutions, community colleges versus uh, universities. And within each category, we're also looking at institutions that vary by their institutional capacity to respond to performance funding. So we're looking at high-capacity and low-capacity community colleges, high-capacity and low-capacity okay. universities. And it was our sense that that kind of careful contextual analysis was really needed because as good as a lot of the studies were that we pulled together for a review of the literature, we were also struck by there were considerable limitations that um, had to be addressed. Okay. Um, you asked about the future performance yeah, future. funding, and I'd be interested in Vikash's reaction as well. Um, our sense is that at this point, it's it's now a very well-established movement. Um, we're probably likely to see more states move in the direction of performance funding 2.0, that is, embedding performance funding indicators in the uh, base state funding. Um, But at the same time, you know, there's always a need for a degree of caution. Um, You know, performance funding 1.0 had spread very rapidly through the 1990s, and then there was a tremendous wave of discontinuation in the early 2000s. It's not inconceivable that may happen again. Um, uh, Another recession, recession, uh, the program champions in the legislature or the governor's office who are behind, you know, let's say a recent 2.0 program might leave. Their successors might not be interested. As performance funding 2.0 bites more deeply into how institutions behave, might they find it uh, uh, painful to deal with and, and, and encounter greater uh, unintended impacts? Might that arouse greater opposition? So, you know, while it's definitely a movement that um, has spread widely and does seem to be getting more institutionalized, we always have to operate with a degree of caution and easily forecasting that it will, you know, continue simply, you know, spreading in its current form. So uh, it's um, it will be very interesting over the next five to ten years to see which way this is going. But it's clear that this kind of movement, going back to something Vikash was saying, because it's primarily focusing on, in effect, institutions as profit-seeking institutions, a kind of view that resonates a lot with kind of the market emphasis that's marked social policy in the last 30 years, um, it's probably unlikely that, therefore, this kind of emphasis is going to go away entirely. But on the other hand, um, Political times change, mm-hmm. attitudes change. It will be very interesting mm-hmm. to see what happens over the next five to ten years. Okay. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, 
Vikash, do you want to? No, I think that? broadly, I, I would I would agree. I think sort of the, the overarching, dare I say, neoliberal trends in in policy and social policy, I think maybe took a little bit longer to, to sort of sink their teeth into higher education. Uh, but I don't know that they're necessarily going anywhere. So my guess is, you know, you would see some states in the next several years who, which have performance funding now maybe do away with it, only to be replaced by other states who are implementing it. Um, I, I somehow in my head, I doubt that too many states are going to go the way of Tennessee and go, you know, 100% of the of the non-maintenance budget will be based on, on outcomes indicators. Um, but I, I dare say, you know, more the the states that are adopting it will probably go beyond sort of the, the single digit percentages uh, in an attempt to sort of increase the bite that the program has. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's anybody's guess how faculty uh, will will respond sort of in the, in the sort of more medium run or, or long run um, and what pressures those will put on administrators who then, you know, and, and again, it, different states, I, I, they just operate so differently with, with regards to the centrality of their of their, their administrative structures and, and the autonomy of their various campuses that I think it could play out differently in different states and, and will be, I think, very interesting to watch. Okay. I, I, one, one question. Uh, you guys, you know, we, we keep mentioning the states here in the book, uh, and, I, and, you, and you touch on it very briefly at the end. Uh, where does the, the federal government play in all of this? Or is that a whole nother book, perhaps? <laughs> well, it, it's, yeah, no, the federal government, I mean, for the most part, I mean, performance funding is a state phenomenon. Mm-hmm. The federal government has not really been engaging in it except at the margin with this or that program. But it's bidding to play a bigger role. And we're certainly seeing with uh, the Obama administration's college scorecard, the way mm-hmm. it's talking about tying the disbursement of, of federal student aid to how will colleges do on, this, on the scorecard, the fact that it's talking about uh, a race to the top for higher education mm-hmm. in which one of the things that successful proposals would be encouraged to include would be state performance funding. Mm-hmm. There's good reason to believe that, at least for the Obama administration, there's a continued and increasing not only federal support for performance funding, but even federal involvement in performance funding. Um and that, again, is a major change. But I guess, like everything else, one has to say, well, the Obama administration is now, you know, um, uh, four years from, um, uh, you know, has four more years. How much will occur in mm-hmm. these four years? We don't know what the successor administration will be like. Will this continue to be an emphasis of, right. of the federal government? Probably, mm-hmm. but uh, not certainly. Right. Uh, so this growing federal role is very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, probably will increase, but not certainly. Okay. And again, will be very much uh, worth watching. So all eyes on on twenty sixteen, I guess. For, yep. Especially for this, uh, fantastic. So you guys, um, New Books Network. We we usually the, the sort of one of the concluding questions is, uh, um, you know, what kind of what's the future research for for yourselves? You kind of jumped into it. Um, a little bit, but is there any other projects that, that you want to uh, kind of talk about or mention real quick? Uh, well, I can say this. I mean, our successor project that we're involved with now that is finishing up now that we're hoping we'll be producing a, a book is we're looking at the implementation of performance funding in three states, Indiana, Ohio, and Tennessee. Mm-hmm. And we mentioned with our colleagues, um, uh, Sasanya Jones, Hannah Lahr, Rebecca Natal, Lara Fiat, um, and um, did I miss anybody? I think I got everybody. So, yeah. 
think that was everyone. Yeah. Um, so and so that will be that's really uh, caught up with us now. But that will be sort of keeping my hands full for about a year. But Vikash has got yet other things that, uh, that are taking. I mean, it's a little thing that, that's known in the business is the dissertation. Ah, okay. um, so uh, you know, I don't want to say too much before my committee gives me the go ahead to do so, but. Uh, thinking about sort of education policy making coalitions and and looking actually at, at where Teach for America might be and and in particular some of their alumni who are now sort of deeper into that game. Um, so okay, maybe I'll come back for that. Fantastic. And uh, I guess uh, with that, uh, we're going to go ahead and end uh, the podcast here. Uh, thank you, uh, Kevin Doherty and uh, Makash Reddy. Uh, and I encourage everyone to go uh, and check out their book, Performance Funding for Higher Education. Uh, what are the mechanisms? What are the impacts? Uh, definitely something that we're going to be seeing more of. And if you really want to understand uh, what what exactly this is, then this is definitely the book that sort of combines uh, all of the, the studies and, and puts it together into one place. So this is definitely where you want to go look. Um, so that's going to be it for me, Ryan Allen. And uh, thank you to our authors today. And uh, I hope you guys uh, learned something. Thank you very much. Thank Thank you. you.